The Hamlet Podcast, episode 34. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. After a good deal of build-up, we have now arrived at the ghost's testimony of just what caused his death. For the sake of the cliffhanger, I ended the last episode in the middle of a verse line, shame on me, but I'll repeat that half line in the text we cover. The ghost's explanation goes as follows. Brief let me be. Sleeping within my orchard, my custom always of the afternoon, upon my secure hour thy uncle stole, with juice of cursed Hebanon in a vial, and in the porches of my ears did pour the leprous distilment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body, and with a sudden vigour doth posset and curd like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. So did it mine. And with a sudden vigour doth posset and curd like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. So did it mine. And a most instant tetter barked about, most lazar-like, with vile and loathsome crust all my smooth body. Thus was I, sleeping by a brother's hand of life, of crown, of queen at once dispatched, cut off even in the blossoms of my sin, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, no reckoning made but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. Oh, horrible, oh, horrible, most horrible. We have discussed feminine endings in the past, but the ghost speech has quite a few of them, so I want to revisit them right now. The basic building block of dramatic language in Shakespeare's day was an iamb, I-A-M-B, two syllables, a short followed by a long. The best and perhaps most memorable example of this I've ever heard given was at a workshop I did with a director from the Royal Shakespeare Company, who suggested that the loveliest of all iams is also his drink order, champagne. Short, long. Five such feet make up a pentameter, for a very thirsty theatre director. De-dum, 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 or champagne, 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 champagne. This is the standard rhythm at work in Elizabethan and Jacobean drama, whether by Shakespeare or any of his contemporaries. Indeed, some of Shakespeare's earlier plays are exclusively in verse of this rhythm. As the rhythm became familiar and actors became more accomplished at speaking it, Shakespeare began to manipulate it and even invert it. The opposite of an iam is a trochee, which is a long-short pairing. The most extreme example of this happens in King Lear, just before the title character dies. He has the line, never, 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 which is a particularly bleak, halting and absolute inversion of the rhythm that dominates all of Shakespeare's plays. It would of course sound ridiculous if pronounced never, 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 so we see here that Shakespeare is deliberately playing with how the rhythm flows. We will doubtless discuss prose, by which I mean non-verse lines, at another time, but for now back to the point, the feminine ending. As well as inverting the basic short-long champagne rhythm in any number of ways, Shakespeare sometimes squeezes in an extra syllable into the line. There's no hard and fast rule at work, nothing that is set in stone as a meaning for a feminine ending. Shakespeare just happens to be fond of the device of adding an extra syllable to a line of ten beats, and he does it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it is simply for poetic license, basically so that he can fit in a word he wants into a line. And sometimes it is to do with the heightened emotions happening in a piece of text. The more time that a reader, and certainly an actor, spends with this language, 
the more she or he will start to pick up on all of the clues these things give. If you're very nerdy and interested, like me, I thoroughly recommend John Barton's classic television series Playing Shakespeare. The episode Using the Verse is extremely helpful for its variety of explanations of all of the things that we're discussing here. The reason for this long detour to discuss the verse is that there are a lot of feminine endings in this week's text. We begin with the very first line of this description. Brief let me be, sleeping within my orchard. That has 11 syllables. The ghost is setting up the situation and sneaks in this bonus syllable while he describes the location. For all of his saying he will be brief, the ghost is embarking on a sentence that is some 15 lines long, longer even than an entire sonnet. Paying attention to the verse and its clues is the only way that an actor is going to know how to phrase and deliver such a long string of ideas. We know that the king is having a nap in the orchard. So far, so pleasant. He says, My custom always of the afternoon, upon my secure hour thy uncle stole, with juice of cursed hebanon in a vial. Personally, I like to picture Hamlet Sr. in his favourite chair, perhaps enjoying the sound of the sea outside the orchard, presumably not far away. This is how he likes to spend his afternoons. Knowing this, Claudius steals up on him at his secure hour. Obviously, he does this reliably at the same time every day, with juice of cursed hebanon in a vial. Unfortunately, there is no consensus as to what hebanon might be. In Christopher Marlowe's play, The Jew of Malta, there is a reference to the juice of hebon, which is likewise a poison. Some texts argue for a line reading of hebona, an alternate name for hebanon. Both of them have three syllables, so they don't really change the rhythm. Other than its appearance in Hamlet, there are scant references to this poison anywhere else. People have theorised that perhaps Shakespeare meant hemlock, or ebony, henbane, or even yew, but personally, I doubt that our writer was such a pharmacologist that he worried about it. Think about the vast number of exotic, toxic substances and chemical agents that get listed in thrillers and dramas these days. Just like them, I find it entirely possible that Shakespeare made up the name of that awful poison that Claudius uses to kill the king. The line containing its name has this extra syllable, it's another feminine ending, no surprise in this, since Shakespeare surely wants the actor to land the name of the poison and the little vial in which it appears. And what does this evil uncle do with it? And in the porches of my ears did pour the leprous distilment. Even the sound of this is violent and sneaky. Leprous means corrupting and poisonous, and of course to our modern ears, it has the echo of leprosy. Many times already in the play we've had the references made to assaults or attacks to people's ears, and this is why. The king is poisoned via the ear, that's where Claudius pours it into his head, and so Shakespeare has been laying the groundwork for this for several scenes already. Next, the king describes at length the effect of this cursed juice. The leprous distilment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man, that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body, and with a sudden vigour doth posset and curd, like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood, so did it mine. There are a great many images lashed together here. We have the poison being so hostile to the human flesh that it flows like quicksilver or mercury through the body. The king describes the body, his body, I might add, like a city with gates and alleys. He then gets technical as the poison possets or curdles the blood just like eager droppings into milk. Now, I haven't seen this written anywhere else before, 
but personally I'm taking eager here to be Shakespeare's version, stay with me, of the French word aigre, A-I-G-R-E. It means sour or bitter, and when, for example, it refers to wine, we get vin aigre or vin aigre, which becomes vinegar. So eager here is not a million miles from vinegar, and indeed, when you add vinegar to milk, it will certainly curdle and thicken. Adding sour liquids like vinegar or lemon juice is a sure way, by the way, of making homemade buttermilk. But of course, you know this already. The ghost describes the blood as thin and wholesome. Certainly, if the poison makes it thicken and clog up this quickly, the king likely had a swift but terrifying death. But that's not all. This poison has even more effects. And a most instant tetter barked about, most Lazar-like, with vile and loathsome crust, all my smooth body. As well as the contagion happening on the inside, the king's skin breaks out with a rash of blisters, tetter, that looked very much like leprosy. The description Lazar-like refers to Lazarus, the patron saint of lepers. The poison causes a rash, a bark, a vile and loathsome crust to form with terrifying speed across all his smooth body. Certainly, Claudius was taking no chances with this poison. Interestingly, the ghost does not describe his death in any more detail. Very effectively, Shakespeare leaves that to our imagination. He finishes the line halfway through, leaving space for the actor to take a slight pause before he continues. He doesn't waste any space trying to conjure up an image of what it's like to die. The ghost explains this highly effective, monstrous poison, takes a pause for breath after his aggressive 15-line sentence, in which we can imagine for ourselves the discomfort and terror in which he died. And then he continues. Bad enough that he has been murdered by his brother, and thereby separated from his life, his crown and his queen, one notes in that order, but what's really terrible is that he hasn't received any of the traditional, and I should say Catholic, last rites. Thus was I sleeping by a brother's hand, of life, of crown, of queen at once dispatched, cut off even in the blossoms of my sin, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, no reckoning made but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. Just as the oblique references to purgatory are echoes of a fading Catholic world, so here the king laments that he was killed without being able to make a confession, that is, in the blossoms of his sin, without receiving communion, or unhouseled, disappointed, or in a less than ready condition, and unannealed, without having received extreme unction. The traditional last rites performed for someone very close to death included confession of one's sins, the anointing of the sick, or extreme unction, and the Eucharist, in this instance called viaticum, or provision for the journey. Hamlet's father lists all of these things, since this loss is partly responsible for his being in purgatory, where his crimes are being burned away. It's a terrible thing for him to have been killed without any religious preparation for death. Indeed, there might, just might, be a slight sense that Shakespeare is giving voice to all of his parents' and grandparents' generation, who would, under the new Protestant regime in England, be being sent off to the world to come without the comfort of these old ways. Our feminine endings have occurred at key points throughout this speech. The orchard, the poison, the body. And now the ghost reaches his conclusion with a line that has not one, but two extra syllables. Oh, horrible. Oh, horrible. Most horrible. And now this line encapsulates all of the terror that he must have felt having been poisoned, 
by his brother, and indeed the realisation that none of the customary preparation for death has been allowed to him. This goes beyond a feminine ending into what the French in particular call an Alexandrine, a line of 12 beats. What the line of iambic pentameter is to English drama, the Alexandrine is to French drama. That's a whole other podcast worth of thought, mind you, so perhaps we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for listening, and do note that there are further details about iams, trochees, and even alexandrines on the website, thehamletpodcast.com.